Hey there, welcome to the House Podcast. We hope that today's message challenges you in the best ways. Remember to reach out to us anytime, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. But it's good to be with you today. Uh, as Matt mentioned, I'm, my name's Oliver, I'm one of the pastors here, and um, this has got to be, if we're honest, like the most disappointing Sunday of the year, right? Like we are hitting, like we came off of Easter and it's like, you know, we had all the kids stuff going and we had the pastries and baptisms and a great message from Chad and all this stuff happened. And then you come this week and it's like uh, the baptism tank's deflated and shoved into a closet somewhere and the pastries are gone and you get me and it's like, I know it's disappointing. And so um, I'm with you on that, okay? Okay. But I think there's actually something really important about this Sunday as we kind of maybe have this, you know, desire to like run it back. Oh man, if we could experience that again. But the truth is we live on this side of resurrection. And how do we, for us, you know, make resurrection, the story of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, more than just a story we retell each year, but something that we participate in and live out in our everyday lives. And so we are asking this question of now what? You know, what what now on this side of resurrection? And our new series, um, is called Rooted, and it's based in the book of Colossians, and I think it really kind of helps us answer that question of what now? Um, Paul gives this, this imperative to the, the church in Colossae. He says, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. And last week, Chad spoke from Colossians 1, and this morning we're going to continue in that chapter as we explore what being rooted in Christ looks like for us today on this side of the Easter narrative. There's a quote uh, from A.W. Tozer who once said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Some people have made tweaks to this idea or suggested something slightly different, but his point was that your view of God will shape everything else about your faith. That, that what you imagine when you imagine God is like the lens which you see everything else through. And so if you get that wrong, if your picture of God is distorted, everything else will be as well. It's the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? What's the first picture that comes to mind when you think about God? For a long time, the primary portrait of God that the church kind of portrayed was one of a kind of a grand, awe-inspiring, sovereign God. If you think back to, you know, the Middle Ages and, and, and like some of the cathedrals that were made, some of you have maybe been to like the Vatican or some of these, you know, cathedrals that took hundreds of years to build. There's one I read about this week that took 600 years to like fully construct this cathedral, and it's just majestic. You walk in, and the high ceilings, the stained glass windows, all of the art and the architecture, all of it kind of points to a grand, sovereign, you know, supreme vision of what God is like, this reverence that comes from it. And we see this in the art in the day, and we see it in the writings of that day. You know, we have this kind of old English language that we no longer use, you know. Oh, God Almighty, thou hast, you know, delivered me from thy pit of despair. It's like, we don't talk like that anymore, but somehow that language makes us feel like we're drawn into this big, grand narrative. And all of this points to this big view of God, sovereign, all-knowing, eternal and that's not a critique. 
But eventually, people started to say, hey, that view of God is epic and inspiring. It's, it's great, but it doesn't really land well with my neighbor. You know, it doesn't really land well with my atheist coworker or friend who spends most Friday nights at the bar. So how do we make God, you know, more approachable or attractive or relevant to a world that's not particularly interested in grand cathedrals anymore? How do we make God relevant and approachable to a, to a world that's not wowed by that kind of expression of God. And from there, the pendulum swung the other direction uh, to a more uh, approachable portrait of God, which I imagine most of us are familiar with here at the house. That's kind of our thing. You're like sipping your coffee. You're like, I get this. Now we're talking. Approachable God. I like that, right? That's kind of our, our MO here. But we don't talk about God, you know, like with thou's and thine hasts, you know, that would be weird for us here at the house, right? You would probably be like, I'm in the wrong place this morning, right? Like you'd be, you know, walking out. We tend to emphasize a God who is approachable, less, you know, majestic and like all, you know, everything, you know, powerful, knowing all of those omnis. We think of a God who's more like our friend, our buddy, our, our support system, you know, in the early 2000s, there was this movement um, that became kind of this uh, trend, which then became this fashion trend, of course, which is the way it works, where it, it, there's a statement, Jesus is my homeboy. And I don't know, maybe you saw a sticker or a shirt. There was all sorts of celebrities who wore this shirt. And it actually came out of um, this kind of gang culture. And this guy thought, how do we make Jesus relevant to that culture? And so this idea of Jesus is my homeboy became this kind of slogan to say, like, Jesus has my back. You know, he's like, he's one of us. He's got my back. And so there's this approachable nature to God that we emphasize. You can talk to God anywhere, anytime. You just say, hey, God, it's me, right? That's how we talk to God often. And that's not necessarily a critique either. The point is that our view of God has been shaped by someone or something. Our church, our family, the books we read, the shows we watch, the images that we see, and we tend to gravitate towards a view of God that resonates with us, with me. A view of God that I like, that I kind of find my place in. And the danger is that we end up majoring on one aspect of God and missing some other aspects of God's character. And in majoring on the approachable nature of God, maybe, just maybe, we've missed something around the wonder and awe of the person of Jesus. And our text today in Colossians helps us recapture that kind of view of God. Paul begins this text with a poem about who Jesus is. It's called like a Christological poem. We get all of this beautiful, magnificent um, words around who Jesus is. You may notice in your Bible, depending on your translation, the, the text will shift from like a paragraph form in Colossians 1.15 to a sort of poetic form. It's almost like the Psalms. It reads less like a, you know, teaching and more like a poem. And so I thought instead of just jumping into this text and throwing the words on the screen, we could just kind of engage in this writing as a poetic form of writing as we let Paul, the Apostle Paul, paint a picture of what Jesus is like as we find it in this text. And so um, in a second, I want to invite you to close your eyes and just allow your mind to look like a blank canvas. I know that's like the hardest thing ever for some of us. You're like, oh, blank canvas, blank canvas. Where am I going for lunch? Um, uh, I get that. But allow your mind to just be like a blank canvas just for a second. 
and allow the Apostle Paul to just kind of paint on the canvas of your mind a picture of who Jesus is because the thing that comes into your mind when you think about God might be the most important thing about you. And so would you close your eyes with me, take a deep breath, and let me read as we let Paul paint a picture of Jesus. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything on heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world. And I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. You can open your eyes. In our culture today, we face the challenge of trying to convince people that there is a God who exists, who created all things. That is mostly not the norm as people grow up today, that they don't start with that assumption or that premise. But the culture Paul writes to in this letter is one where people believed in all sorts of gods. Uh, You didn't have to convince people of a, a God being there or a God existing. They had all sorts of gods they worshiped and, and kind of gave honor to. There were all sorts of competing philosophies and teachings about how to live a spiritual life in light of these gods, in light of this spiritual reality that they believed in. There were some who thought that Jesus was just a spirit. He wasn't really human. He wasn't really, you know, uh, he didn't take human form. He was like a spirit, just kind of like all the other gods. And there were others who thought that Jesus was, was not a God at all. He was just kind of a good teacher. He was, you know, he had a certain philosophy that he brought, just like other people had bought, brought around how to live your life. And it was a great philosophy, but it was one of many. He was just another teacher. And then there were others still who believed Jesus was God, but he was just kind of one of the gods. We could throw him into the mix with all the other gods, the God of the, you know, sun and the God of the rain. And now there's this new God, Jesus. And we can kind of throw him in and lump him in with all of the other gods. And so there were all sorts of competing ideas around who Jesus was, and their view of God was at risk of being distorted or misconstrued, hijacked. And Paul knows 
what a distorted understanding of Jesus can do and lead to. And so he writes this letter to the church to root them in their understanding of who Jesus is in the gospel. And it's like you can hear him addressing the false teachings as he writes this beautiful masterpiece of a poem. He begins with a portrait of Christ as creator. He says it this way. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. So Paul is addressing here this this idea, this false teaching that Jesus is God, but he's kind of one of many. He just sort of fits into the, the smorgasbord of gods that you can worship and pay homage to. And he writes that Jesus is not just a created being. He is himself the creator. He says everything was created through him and for him. And this is like one of the great mysteries of our faith tradition. Um, It's this doctrine of the Trinity. If you've ever tried to explain it to someone who's not a Christian, I mean, good luck. Like, you know, there's this beautiful uh, paradox at the center of our faith around the Trinity that we believe God is both one and also three. (laughs) I worked as a window cleaner for a couple of years in Kelowna and um, my whole entire team that I worked with were Jehovah's Witnesses. There's like six of them. And um, I spent a lot of time with them talking theology. I was straight out of Bible college and they wanted to talk of theology, and I was like guns blazing. I was like ready for a good old-fashioned, you know, theological debate, if that's, a, if that's a thing. But I was like, had my, you know, biblical studies degree, and they wanted to talk theology. So for like essentially two years, you know, we climbed ladders and talked about who Jesus was. And um, one of their main talking points was this doctrine of the Trinity. And they were kind of trained to sort of poke holes in other people's faith or their theology, their doctrine. They would come at you with like a certain angle. You know, they were like taught like, you know, start with this idea and work your way down. And so they would often bring up this idea of the Trinity and they would say things like this. Is there one God? Well, yes, there is. Okay, great. Is Jesus God? Yes, he is. Is the Holy Spirit God? Yes, he is. Is the Father God? Yes. Okay, so there's three separate gods, right? No, hold on. Like, it's like, you know, immediately you just like, wait a second. This is actually not fully making sense. It's a paradox. It's this mysterious thing that God is both one God and also revealed in three separate forms of God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And they would scratch their head and look funny at me because for them, they believe that, you know, God is not, uh, Jesus is not God himself. He's sort of a created being. He's, there's some sort of divine aspect to him, but he's not, he's God's son. He's not God. There's a distinction there that they made. But if ever there was a text to kind of point someone like that to, it's this one. We get this beautiful picture of Jesus as God the creator. Paul says Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Or a bit later, God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So Paul takes all of his Jewish understanding of there being one God, the God of, you know, that was revealed in the Old Testament, the creator God of Genesis, Yahweh. He takes all of that theology and then he applies it to the person of Jesus, saying God actually was in the person of Jesus, that Jesus was part of this creative work that we call our world. 
He's not just a holy being or divine messenger. He is the God who creates order out of disorder, who speaks the world into existence by his very word. This is Jesus. Theologian Abraham Kuyper once said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. But Paul is aware that some people might misconstrue this idea. And actually, sometimes we misconstrue this idea as well, suggesting that, okay, it's great, Jesus created the world, but he just probably kind of set it in motion. He sort of took a holiday, you know, he he did all the work of creating, and then he kind of got it going, and then he stepped back, and now the world is just kind of running its own course. And so Paul goes on, and he paints a second portrait of Christ as sustainer. He says it this way, He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He holds all creation together. The world we live in is very good at coming up with laws and theories to explain how our world works. And we have all sorts of amazing scientific discoveries and, and things that, that draw us into, that help us understand this creation that we live in. So much so that it's easy to come to the conclusion that what governs our world is just a set of laws around science and physics and you know, thermodynamics and all of that kind of thing. And that might all be true. But Paul here wants us to see that behind all of those things, behind every system, every theory around the universe, every scientific law or principle is Jesus. If you pull back the curtain one layer further, you find Jesus of Nazareth. That without Jesus, the entire cosmos would collapse. That every breath, every moment, every intricacy of life is sustained by him. He holds it Together, we sing that song, Greater You, Lord. It's like, the breath in my lungs is yours. He's not just the creator of life. He sustains it every moment of every day. Then finally, Paul brings us back to the Easter narrative, actually, as he paints one final portrait for us of who Jesus is. He paints this portrait of Christ as reconciler. He says it this way, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything on heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Most people in that day believed the gods were real, but they were kind of a vindictive, angry God. And they attributed every sort of natural disaster to the gods. And in fact, to this day, we still call a natural disaster an act of God. And so for eons, the question kind of lurking in the minds of religious people was, how do we appease the gods? How do we get right with these gods? How do we live in harmony with them? How do we obey them? And so there was all sorts of solutions that people come up, came up with. Savior, devotion and prayer and worship, you know, certain eat or can't do all sorts of things, all an attempt to make right what had clearly gone so This is where the portrait of Jesus stands God's in that day. Reconciler. But it's the way he does it that is so scandalous for us that back then and for us today. 
after painting this beautiful portrait of Christ as creator, as sustainer, Paul then takes us from God who all things, who sustains everything by is the God that we find hanging on a cross. Is the God for us. Is the God who took on skin and flesh. When a first century person God, they thought authoritative, triumphant, victorious God over his creation. When Paul thinks about what God is like, the image of, that comes to his mind is Jesus of Nazareth hanging on a cross. And if you want to know how we make right what has clearly gone so wrong in our world, look no further that day. Brian Zand says it this way. At the cross of Christ, we discover the axis of divine love that refounds a fallen world. If the tree of the humanity contracts death, then it's at the tree of Calvary that humanity finds its cure. I, as some of you have been privileged to visit Niagara Falls in Ontario. It's uh, this, if you haven't gone, you have to go out east. It's beautiful. You know, it's just beautiful. Um, I was able to visit uh, back in 2016, and you know, you go, and one of the things that you can do, it's kind of an optional thing, uh, is you know, book a ticket on like the Maid of the Man. You know, it's that's at the bottom of the falls. Most people are up at the top, and you get this beautiful picture of the falls. But there's this these boats that go on the bottom, and they you pay an exorbitant amount of money. Uh, like you convince yourself this is a really good idea. Pay an exorbitant amount of money to get stuck on a boat with a bunch of other tourists and go incredibly closer to this waterfall that has like three thousand tons of water every second. You're like, this is a fantastic idea. And so you, you pay this money, you jump on this boat, they give you this small, tiny little like rain guard. And I have a photo. She looks like she's having the time of her life. I look for some reason, like I just woke up. And so I don't know what happened. That's like my, excitement. um, I'm, we're, we're on this boat and it's one thing to, it's one thing to see a photo of it. You know, uh, it's like, it, it, it is awe inspiring. It is so magnificent. It is another thing to be on the, uh, uh, seeing the falls come down from above. Um, there is a weight to the falls that comes. You feel the gravity of the water. You literally feel it. Your whole body just kind of shaking constantly because of the weight of this massive waterfall. You can't hear anything. You can't have a conversation inside boat because it's so loud and if you didn't have that tiny little rain guard that probably costs like three cents those tourist companies that we pay way too much for you would be soaked like literally there's so much water just everywhere it is just this awe-inspiring magnificent moment and there is a kind of reverence that comes from being at the as you creep closer and closer, uh, there's almost like a holy fear that you get where you're like, wow, I am so small and insane. We think we're like a big deal. You're down on that boat and you're coming closer to Niagara Falls from below and you're like, I am not anymore. Like you feel significant for a brief point in our text. Paul has painted this picture of Christ that leaves us feeling kind of the same way. 
where we gaze at the face of Jesus, creator, sustainer, reconciler of all things. We go, man, we're so small and insignificant. Like there's just this, this reverence that we have for Jesus, which we need. Because in our culture, we're told that like me and reality and my emotions are the center of everything. And so we need this, this grandness, his greatness. And text has been creation. Paul has tried to show us how Jesus reconciles all of creation to himself through him. But then he shifts the focus to us and he makes it personal. After claiming that Christ has reconciled all of creation, he makes it personal this way. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you in his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Paul wants us to see that the Jesus who created the world, the Jesus who sustains it every single moment of every day has also created us and sustained us. And he wants us to see that the Jesus who reconciles the whole world to himself has also reconciled us who were once far from God. He takes the grand, awe-inspiring portrait of And then he says, that same God wants to know you and be known by you. In other words, the creator of all things, this God who makes us feel small and insignificant in comparison to his grandeur and also approaches you can come before him with confidence. More than that, you can talk to him. You can get to know him. You can hear his voice. You can be reconciled to him. He's both so much bigger than we could ever imagine and yet equally so much more approachable than we ever thought possible. He's both so much greater than we envision and yet also so much closer and approachable than we realize. He's so much holier than we know, and yet more loving than we deserve. What comes into your mind might be the most important thing. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you think about God who crosses his arms and looks deeply unimpressed with your best efforts to be obedient? Or do you think about a God who just wants to make you happy and isn't particularly concerned about how you live your life at all? Or do you think about a God who would bend the heaven and earth he created that you and I might be reconciled to him, to stand before him holy and blameless and to know him deeply and personally? That is the portrait of God that Paul paints for us. And that is the portrait I find so compelling about Jesus. All of it comes back to the person of Jesus. Author N.T. Wright says, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. The central character in our story is Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God. And the more we root ourselves in him, the more we come to see him as he is, not as we wish he were, or not as we would like to see him, but as he truly is, the more our lives come into focus and they make sense. And, and the more we begin to experience the life he has on offer for us. In Jesus, we see a God who not only creates the world and is sovereign over it, but who dies for the world, that we might be reconciled to him in all his fullness, standing before him holy and blameless in his presence. 
what picture of God comes to mind when you think about God? Is it a picture of Jesus? Together as we close. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. And this morning, Lord, together as a community, we just gaze at who you are. We take a minute and just contemplate deeply who you are and what you've done for us. You have created us. You have sustained us. And you have brought us back to yourself. And so, Lord, I pray that you would root us in that in that image, that it would be seared into our minds and our hearts. That when we think about God, we think about that. A God who would bend heaven and earth, that we might be reconciled. So thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name.